So I want to talk about taking refuge. There are three, classically three refuges. I take refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And we have at Vallejo, we've been having a class. It just, it just started this last week. There's, there, the, uh, four of the senior students have been teaching it in, in two pairs. So each pair is going to wind up teaching two classes and giving two Saturday morning talks. And so we've had the first, we've had the first round. And Saturday, this last Saturday, they talked about the refuges. And one person talked about the refuge, what the word refuge means and about the taking refuge in Buddha. And the other one talked about taking refuge in uh, Dharma and Sangha. And I was really struck by that talk. It was by, that one was by Liam and Kelly, for those of you who know these people. And very, very touched by it and kind of triggered, you know, I don't know, you guys know, I mean, I don't know about you, but I always have antenna out for talk, lecture topics, you know, and when something triggers me and I get sort of leaning into it and really interested, I think, oh, good, there's one. So I'm going to sort of take off from their talk. And they both cited a talk, one of them had, uh, Liam lives in uh, Portland and he practices uh, on the weekends, he goes to uh, Dharma Rain, which is, I commend to you. It's a wonderful, wonderful uh, center. And the talk was by their head of practice, a woman named Jiko Sally Tisdale. So she's their tanto. And she's a great writer and a great speaker also. She wrote a book you may have heard of called Advice for Future Corpses and Those That Love Them. And she's a, she's a palliative care nurse. And so it's a great book. Anyway, uh, so a lot of this is due to her also. So refuge. I remember Reb used to say it meant to fly home. Um, the, it comes from the uh, Pali word. Pali, you know, is like sort of the language that preceded Sanskrit. I guess it's a lot like Sanskrit. I'm no Pali scholar. Ask, ask Kokyo when you see. Uh, so uh, it, it's the Pali, uh, the translation of uh, Sarana Gamana. And it's uh, Sarana is. Uh, peace or safe. I suppose it's the same root as serene. Don't you think? And those early words often are, you find their way into our language and, and Latin languages. So serana gamana means to return. So to return to your safe place, your true, your true home. And as you know, I'm sure refuge usually means to find <clears throat> find a safe place. Either literally, you take re- refuge in a sanctuary church if you came from uh, Latin America, 
or a woman, uh, her husband dies and she takes refuge or she finds refuge in her music. That's the kind of thing we usually think of. And we usually think of it as uh, safe from something, safe from the ravages of her grief, safe from the um, ice people, safe from a tornado in a storm cellar. It's a refuge. But, or and, Jiko spoke about it in a very different way, and, and uh, Liam, who gave that part of the lecture, was very, uh, not exactly surprised, but he had never heard refuge talked about in the following way, and he found it challenging and interesting and useful and moving. Jiko said, that it's complete refuges, complete devotion. It's throwing yourself in, completely abandoning yourself, so that it's it's completely not, it's not a walling off. It's a jumping in throwing yourself in. I haven't gone to lectures from Zen Center for quite a while, so I don't know if Reb still says this, but he used to say, throw yourself into the womb of light. He liked that. So that's just another way of saying it. And... uh, Going to your true home is another way of saying it, but it's not as sort of challenging as the way Jiko talked about it. But what you could say, but you need to ask yourself, what is your true home? What is my true home? Is there a safe space? If only, if only. So it's not a walling off. It's a ref- taking refuge in your true true self. It's not an escape. One thing that it reminded me of this talk was that it, it's not a nest, that we tend to build nests. We're warned against building nests. I think Uchiyama Roshi talks about this some. Don't, don't make a nest. We want to find a, a place or a way or a person or a thing that's going to make us feel safe. And I sort of say, unfortunately, maybe it is unfortunately, at at any rate, true safety is in letting go of all that. Jumping off the proverbial 100-foot pole and finding your peace in no peace, finding your peace in change I think 
I didn't write down what the, the various quotes. Uh, Katagiri Roshi was quoted, I think it was Katagiri, about that, you take refuge in your true self, what cannot be destroyed. Oh, another wonderful thing. Chico said, it's a pouring yourself in. And a complete letting go. A complete letting go. It's it's finding trust. Finding your trust in No, the Dharma, Buddha, emptiness, letting go. I think you find it though. It finds you, maybe. You know, it, it isn't something that you can will and say, okay, I'm going to completely trust in the Dharma and I'm going to let go of all my ideas and attachments. That's nice. There's a wonderful Hemingway line, wouldn't it be pretty to think so? So we say these refuges often, sometimes, I don't know if you do this here, but sometimes we sing them in Pali. I love doing that. But we often, we don't think about it that much. You know, it's something you, you uh, I sing it in Pali and I just love it. And we usually do it at the end of a, a long day, a one day sitting or a, a sashin day. So it's like this um, very sweet lullaby at the end of the day. And I don't, I, I mean, there is a taking refuge there, but I, it isn't, it isn't something I think about. It's something I feel in my body. It just feels so sweet and and supportive that we are singing this together. You know, and it it comes out of nowhere. There's no no um, clunk on a bell or no bop or no nothing. It just uh, we we stand up at the end of the day and we. Uh, adjust our cushions a little bit and people move away and they're actually just standing on the floor angled towards the altar and uh, we do three bows and then I put my palms together, I put my hands in gasho and when I'm ready I start and everybody joins in and there are all these voices singing together and it's very powerful. And I never thought of it just this, what I'm saying, that it is it is a taking refuge. We did talk about this on Saturday in various ways. People were saying, it isn't something that I intended to do, but I walked into the Zendo. The first time, one woman said, you know, the first time I crossed that threshold, I felt safe somehow. And somebody else said, I, uh, I, I was resistant to doing full bows and I kind of did it because everybody was doing it but I didn't really like it and I didn't understand it and then uh, one day I was bowing and it just completely flooded my whole body that this was something I wanted to do it was expressing something 
And again, that was very powerful for him. So taking refuge. It's a combination, I think, of vow and I'm going to say Buddha's activity or Buddha activity. And it finds us. And our, maybe the way, another way of saying it is that, and then our job is to be open to it. And that's not always easy. And, uh, and I, my experience is that it comes and goes. I don't always feel thrilled. Somebody said that it's a place that seems mysterious, but is full of support. And I think that's a good definition because you can't think think your way into it. You have to be willing to let it be mysterious. And then as you do the Dharma, it it manifests itself to you, right? I, you can't say it explains itself to you, but it manifests itself in your body and mind. And that your job, the taking refuge, it's a, the, the uh, to it, maybe, you know, I say I take refuge in Buddha, but what I really mean is, I mean to be open to Buddha. And that in itself, that, that willingness, that openness, that's the refuge. So, oops, no, I can see. So, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, those are those kind of words you say. Yeah, Buddha. Buddha's a, usually the guy on the altar. This, I think, is Kuan Yin. Or Avalokiteshvara. Okay. She's often it's, yes. I, I I believe you. I can recognize it. She's often very voluptuous. I love that. I have, I have. We have a statue at Clearwater that's uh, very full figured. <laughs> um, but. Uh, Often there's a Buddha on the altar. And, you know, so Buddha's this guy on the altar. Buddha is Shakyamuni Buddha, the historical Buddha. Buddha's the one that, uh, you know, escaped from his his royal home and, and wandered about and ate a grain of rice a day and finally decided this isn't a good idea. And why, why don't I... Uh, find a, a middle way and why don't I eat something? Why don't I wash my clothes? Why don't I take a bath? And then decided to sit until he figured it out and then he did. After a few days, seven days maybe, um, you know, he woke up 
and saw the morning star and said, I, together with all beings, am now enlightened after suffering through the night and also practicing through the night. He understood, through the night, he understood the basic uh, concepts like uh, the Four noble, noble Truths and so on. So there's that guy. But is that Buddha? I mean, we don't even know if he existed. And there are all these different theories. Like, was he born in sort of uh, northern India, southern Nepal? Was it more likely that he was born somewhere along the Silk Road in northern Afghanistan? Or? Uh, we don't know. My teacher Mel often used to say that it doesn't matter because we, um, we learn from these teachings, and so it doesn't matter if they're liter literally true or not. There's a lot of sutras where we don't know. We really don't know. And I don't mean necessarily the Buddha word ones, but a lot of others too, or who wrote the Heart Sutra, we don't know. What is it? So what is this Buddha that that we take refuge in? When we say throw yourself into the womb of light, that's the that's that's Buddha thought of as a womb. Buddha thought of as Buddha nature that we are, not that we have, but that we are. I think it's useful to wrestle with that a little bit, wrestle with it maybe a lot for yourself. What, it, what do I mean when I say Buddha? I personally sometimes say it's truth. I think it may be better to say Buddha is when I am completely willing to be myself and completely willing to let all things come forth and be themselves without my grasping or averting or my simply my being present. The, the, the cool word now is presencing, but I resent it. I hate that. <laughs> uh, but when I am completely willing to be this one with all of my flaws, and all of my strengths without grasping or averting. So you know, I come, I do come from a family uh, where there was not enough uh, affection. And there are reasons and they're not horrible. It's not my parents were not horrible. There was also a lot of affection and a lot of laughing and you name it. But that is true, and I have that wound. 
so I have to be a Buddha with that. You know, and, and I come from a family where you never talked about what was going on. You could always laugh and you could always swear, but you couldn't talk about what was going on in your heart. And I mentioned it sometimes uh, in, in Clearwater because right? one of the things I learned was when I, when I was really touched by something to make a joke. And, and when that impulse comes up, I sometimes say it out loud because it's, I don't know your experience, but I find it's easier to let go of something when you name it. And then you, it's just easier. Then I don't have to actually do it. Sometimes I do do it. Though. I think that's a good way of thinking. This is, this is the Buddha right here. I don't think you can have a Buddha without including everything. And that has to include your hindrances and your resistances and your difficulties and your strengths and your strengths. It's that's, that's the part that's hard for so many of us to look at what our positive qualities are. But your, your, your Buddha, if there's such a thing as your Buddha, has to include it all. It, it, when people in a 12-step program take the fourth step and they're supposed to list all of their strengths and weaknesses, and their weaknesses is like six pages, <laughs> and then they have a really hard time saying what their strengths are. And or, I'd say everybody, and without realizing it, I mean everybody but me. This one, this one. I, I want to be willing to be who I am. Reb said once years ago, because he's 80 now, he said it took him 40 years to be willing to be Reb. Reb is, it's not easy being Reb. I think it's gotten a lot easier over the years, but it, it hasn't been an easy thing. So I think that's, I like that definition of Buddha. Buddha is willingness to be a spark of bodhisattva and own who I am and just continually Letting it go and letting it go and letting go, seeing where I'm entangled, letting it go, letting it arise, abide, and pass away, letting it go. It's so easy to say that, but doing it can be really hard. And I think sometimes uh, in uh, in Zen we forget we forget that part. You know, we kind of, there's a sickness. We jump to emptiness. Oh, uh, uh, yes, uh, I lost something I really cared about. Well, there's no things really anyway, and and, uh, there's no difference between 
there's just there's just vast flow and vast connection. So no, it really doesn't matter. Well, it does matter. As a woman that I know only online, had she she recently lost her um, German Shepherd dog that she had trained from a puppy and she really loved. His name was Trapper John. Anyway, she's been writing about it and how how painful it is, and how she no, she's not going to just get another puppy right away. She she thinks she believes in allowing her grief process to unroll. And I think she's being a Buddha. That's Buddha activity. This was Suzuki Roshi said things as it is. Letting things be as it is. And Dharma, the guy that talked about, Kelly talked about Dharma, and he said he, he researched Dharma and Sangha, and there was a lot about Sangha, and there was very little about Dharma. And he wasn't sure. I don't know why. I could I could imagine. It's so It's so hard. It's hard to grasp. It's hard to talk about. You could say Dharma, you know, class, we say capital D Dharma is the teachings of the Buddha, and small d dharma is just all things, ideas, anything else. However, that is not a very satisfying explanation. And another way of talking about it is dharma is things as it is. Dharma is how things work, how it works. It's also true that um, dharma is... It's the teachings of the Buddha and the basic teachings since that, since Buddha's time, and the techniques, if you will, though I'm loath to call zazen a technique, but the techniques, the practices that we learn in order to practice the Dharma or maybe be the Dharma. <clears throat> My friend Leslie James, who's a, the abiding teacher at Tassahara and a fine, if you ever get a chance to talk to her individually, you should grab it. She's not around very much. and She says she's retiring, but she seems to always be there. Anyway, uh, Leslie talked one time about when when she had diff when she has difficulties. One time she reminded she her her husband has a bad back and he cannot sit sazen anymore. He goes for long meditative walks and they live at the end of the paved road before Tassahara at a, a place called Jamesburg. I wouldn't call it a, even a village. It's just some houses. Anyway, they live there. And so one day she was, she was home, and, and uh, Keith, her husband, went off for one of his walks, and he walks very slowly. <laughs> Leslie can't do it. She could sit zazen forever, but she apparently she just can't walk slowly. <laughs> 
And so she walked, watched him walk away and she felt very sorry for herself and she was feeling kind of jealous. And then she stopped and she reminded herself that she said to herself, this too is the Dharma. This too is the Dharma. And that's the refuge in the Dharma. This too is a Dharma. And then she turned the light inwardly and, and began to consider you know, what it was that was so difficult for her about this. You know, what, what is this jealousy? What is my ancient tangled family karma or whatever that was implicated in it? I don't know, maybe, you know, why is it so hard for me to walk slowly? Am I so goal-oriented? I don't, I don't know. But that seems a great, a great expression in terms of taking refuge in Dharma. This too is the Dharma. I might not like it, and it's the Dharma. Donald Trump is the Dharma. And I do, I do trust that. I do open to that. And I do, I want to take refuge in it, in that process of turning towards the, my bucket of yuck. And that's a way of taking refuge of flying to my true home. My true home is that part of me that is willing to be who I am and to turn towards who I am. And that is how things are. You could say everything arises out of causes and conditions, which is true. But that's up here. That's up here. So taking refuge finding my home in the Dharma, finding my home in the way things actually are, is that sitting down and, and really paying attention, including when I was early on, I started, I had a wonderful mentor, a woman named Maley Scott, and I'd probably been practicing for about six months, and we were walking back from having breakfast after morning zazen at Berkeley, and she said, you know, I think it's about time that you invited your demons up. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what? <laughs> and uh, so I did. Not I don't know if I did it the next day, but pretty soon. And, uh, and I wasn't quite fully open to it. But it was, just, you know, it was starting. So I, I said to myself, I, to the, my, I said, I invite you up to the extent I can stand it. So I sort of <laughs> put a little wall there. What? Edged your bed a bit. Yeah. yeah. And then after a while, I realized that my psyche probably would not allow up more than I could, more than I could stand. And so I, I stopped saying that. And now, now I use that sometimes without the uh, safety net. And that, that process of opening to what is, not wallowing in it, not attached to it, just watching, 
that's that's the Dharma. And it is mysterious but full of support when we really turn towards and take refuge. When we ask for help, when we say, this is the one I did, when, especially when I've had trouble during a, a hard time during a sashin, like a seven-day sashin, say, I call on Prajnaparamita, the little mother. Uh, and if I mean it, there's support there right away. If I don't mean it, if I'm just saying it in my head, never mind. But there's something about completely meaning it that's taking refuge. And accepting that we can't always, that we're just not open enough right then or desperate enough right then. Um, that's the, got to be the Dharma too. So taking refuge in Sangha, Sangha, again, you know, we, we say sometimes Sangha is the community of people who practice together. So this is a Sangha. And I'm part of your sort of extended Sangha because uh, I come here a lot and I know a lot of you and so on. And we are part of a sort of a sister Sangha because Vallejo is close and people come to our party July 29 this year. And uh, we're all together part of the San Francisco Zen Center wider Sangha and then Soto Zen and, and uh, Zen and Buddhism. And you can go on and on and eventually, of course, the Sangha has to be all people. Doesn't it? It has to be everybody. How do I relate to everybody? Do I, do I see them? Do I see the spark of bodhisattva in them? We talked about it this last Saturday, but Vallejo is a pretty small group. So at a Dharma talk, there might be 10 people there. And half of them, or even more than half, might well be online. And there were different descriptions. People would say they had first gone to, uh, say, Sonoma Mountain Zen Center, which has a very large sangha. And one person said he went there and and he got a zazen instruction, but he didn't like it because it was just it was just too big. And then uh, a few weeks later, he came to Vallejo and he said he walked in the door and he's, it was kind of like, ah, oh, okay, I, this, I, I can do this. <laughs> and uh, somebody else said that uh, they went to Sonoma Mountain and they thought, oh, how nice. I can just disappear here and be invisible. <laughs> so you find your sangha. It's a, 
I think it is the sense of community and mutual support within a functioning uh, Zen Sangha, which is what I, you know, that's what I know about. And it doesn't mean, they, people say, Suzuki Roshi apparently said, you should be like milk and water, just mixing. But sometimes it doesn't work like that. There are, there are problems in sanghas. And sometimes you have to have difficult conversations with one another. Sometimes you have to tell somebody that they hurt you or somebody tells you that, that you hurt them. Bendit Tassahara used to do it very simply. She, she just, Sir Regina, she used to just, when somebody said something that hurt her feelings, she'd just shout. I won't shout now because it'll get hard on the mic. It, but she just shout, ow! <laughs> Which is very simple and direct. But we, we don't always like each other, but we, we love each other. And sometimes we have to take the time and the, put in the energy to deal with problems. That's just the way it is. So milk and water is nice, but, but oh, we had a time at Tassahara. Mel was leading the practice period and, uh, there was one guy that used, he just, um, he just, he had a, a kind of volatile temper and sometimes he'd lose it and he'd be uh, right in the middle of a very public area, kind of the coffee tea area. And he'd start, you know, not during Zazen, but he'd just start yelling and swearing loud. And it's, it's quite jarring. And another one had issues about uh, food being served too fast in the zendo. And the uh, the Eno was in the dining room on a day off and this man had a, 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 a people off and they took their day off meal, they put it on a plate because they just ate in the dining room. So he had a plate of food and I don't know what she said. She didn't say anything terrible to him at all, but it, he got triggered and he took the plate of food and he just threw it against the wall. Not at her, but she triggered it. So uh, I talked to uh, Mel about it and I suggested that we have a Sangha meeting because this stuff affected everybody and everybody heard about the plate of food. And everybody heard the yelling and swearing. So we did, you know, and uh, and these people talked about what they apologized, but they also triggered, talked about what triggered him. I, I just, I remember the food thing is that the, um, in his family, um, you had, I think, I think it was that you had to eat really fast and that when his father finished, you were finished. So you had to eat as fast as your father if you wanted to get enough to eat. And so that of course was very traumatic and uh, the, servers in the zendo were uh, walking quickly from one set of people to another. They weren't serving quickly. You know, they were serving like Nash, but, 
but moving quickly to try to help people who had sore knees and so on. So they were uh, they were moving quickly, and that 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 quickness triggered him. So we, then we we understood, and I, I, the other guy had I don't know I don't remember what he said, but he explained, and it was very powerful. And I think that was a kind of a taking refuge in sangha, but it wasn't it wasn't uh, it wasn't easy and light and cute. It was hard. It was hard. And and I really admired them for being willing to open up. And I and I think that is partly the power of sangha. You find support there. And I'm concerned. It's already almost quarter of. So. Um, just want to finish with, you may have heard this story before. Does everybody know who Dogen was? Does anybody not know? Please don't be shy. He was a Japanese founder of our school, and he lived from 1200 to 1253. And he died uh, probably of some sort of cancer or something. He was very ill for a time, and, and he went to Kyoto to get um, medical treatment, but pretty soon it was clear that he was dying and he was very weak. And in his sick room, there was a pillar. And so he got a long piece of white paper and he put three characters on it, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. And he put it up on the pillar. And then he just, as long as he was able, he kept, he just walked around that pillar saying, I take refuge in Buddha. I take refuge in Dharma, I take refuge in Sangha, just walking around the pillar until he couldn't walk at all anymore. But that's that's what it came down to for him. You know, he didn't expound some great uh, core Dharma or something like that. He didn't write haiku. I think he'd already written his death poem. He just took refuge. And it's really useful to me to be reminded to pour myself into it, to completely let go, and to think more deeply about it. So I hope this has been useful because I've been somewhat thinking out loud. So thank you. So do you have any, we could do a few questions or comments if you want. Thanks so much, Mary. Uh, just a, a brief recollection uh, that came to me early in your talk. Uh, one of the first Zen books I ever read was uh, by Joko Beck. I think it's called Everyday Zen. Uh-huh. And uh, it just came, and I, I remembered one of her chapters is something like, what can you rely on? And all the things you couldn't rely on, and then all you can rely on is this very moment. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, 
this is a long time ago, and I really, like so much else, I, I really didn't get it. But, you know, somehow it's, it just came back to me. It's been in my mind. So yeah. um, just strange how... So thanks for well, helping that, yeah. me remember that. Well, that's a great example of how what we talked about on Saturday, that, you know, the, these things... Um, we didn't use the word, I use the word ferment, ferment inside of us. And then slowly, uh, fruit. And and it isn't something that you can set out to have happen. So, I think it, now you know, now you understand it a lot better than you did then. Yeah. I was um, really struck by your description of the um, the three refuges, the chanting, and because we do that on Thursday mornings here, and um, my experience of it is that is that um, it's very energetic, and it's really kind of almost fortifying. Um, and I don't know if you've had that experience as well. No, not so much, but it's very different to do it at the beginning of the day and at the end of the day. So I'd be interested to see if you ever do it at the end of the day, how it, how it feels for you. Um, is it more energetic? I mean, is it a... Well, maybe we can close with the the one I know. Yes, but are we? Are is that it? Okay. You want to just do a clunk? So we're going to do the refuges in Pali, and if I know some of you know it, so probably quite a few of you know it. So just if you know it. Um, you guys online is, you know, chant, but but stay muted. <laughs> Sorry, I'm sure you found out how weird that is. Are they? Do you have chant cards or something? Yeah, we a lot of us know it, so it'll work out. Okay, so let's just chant it. Buddham Saranam Gachami. Dhammam saranam gachami Sangam saranam gachami Dutyam pi buram saranam gachami Dutyam pi dhammam saranam gachami Dutyam pi sangam saranam gachami Tatyam pi buram saranam gachami Hatyam pi damam saranam 
gachami tatyampi sangam saranam gachami For me, it's not, for me, it's home. If we don't do the bell, it's sort of like da 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 da. <laughs> Oops. Okay. Oh, now we need to do the.